Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So today we're talking about the the ongoing um, controversy over Ilhan Omar and the, um, you know, Islamic, like, sort of racist, uh, murderous Islamophobia on the right. Um, a little bit of background here. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, Omar was giving a speech at this, um, I'm not exactly sure uh, what it what it was. The Council um, of American Islamic Relations. Yeah, it was. It, I, I think it was maybe sponsored by them, but you know, some event basically just sort of sort of Muslim activism and uh, one of the, the 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 whole point of the speech, as we'll talk about later, was was to sort of argue that Muslims should assert their their rights as American citizens. Um, to 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 say that you know we're a part of this community and we're not going to sort of keep our heads down and you know be be subjected to collective guilt for acts of terrorism and um, the the sort of money quote that got passed around a lot in the media is she said uh, here's the truth far too long we have lived with the discomfort of being a second class citizen and frankly I'm tired of it and every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it care care that's what you're talking about earlier was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and then all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. So very clear, um, you know, uh, indeed totally anodyne uh, argument as to why bigotry is bad. Yes. This This is why, you know, I mean, you could sort of turn it on its head and say like, well... The, uh, you know, the Christchurch mosque shooter was a white man and um, the Timothy McVeigh was a white man and the guy who, the Sandy Hook shooter was a white man. And so therefore all white men should bear collective responsibility. No, no, for, Ryan, for these Ryan, ter- when some people do something, that doesn't mean that we're all responsible for it. It's just some people doing it and, and we don't yeah. need to act like we're also terrorists, okay? Yeah, and and basically the right uh, seized on the those words. Some people did something, and they used it basically to reinforce the collective guilt of all Muslims for nine eleven. Um, Dan Crenshaw, the one-eyed um, representative from Texas, who used to be a Navy SEAL. He tweeted, uh, first member of Congress ever to describe terrorists who killed thousands of Americans on nine eleven as some people did something." Um, the New York Post, pr- probably, that's the worst really big-time mainstream thing I've seen. They had a front-page uh, headline which which said, you know, some, you know uh, quoted that, and then it had just a picture of 9-11, and here's your something, 2,977 people dead by terrorism. Your something. Right, you know, and, right. And... It, the the message of it is not at all subtle, you know. And and Laura Loomer, the crackpot right winger on Instagram, she's she's accused Omar of treason. 
She said that, quote, Islam is a cancer on humanity and Muslims should not be allowed to seek positions of political office in this country. Um, and so, you know. Well, and the most charitable interpretation is that people were offended because the the right translated some people did something as minimizing 9-11, right? It's just something that some people did as, as if like it's taking out the trash, like just something happened that's like, you know, just quotidian and, and, and just uh, not worthy of note. And so like the, the, the most charitable interpretation is that uh, the offense, um, whether or not it was uh, bigoted about blaming Muslims writ large, was this uh, also totally incorrect, um, taken out of context understanding of her quote um, as, you know, something that it wasn't, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the in the context, she's she's talking about Muslims, and then later on, you know, she goes on to talk about how, on the other hand, you shouldn't be, uh, to, just automatically sympathetic of of countries just because you know the population and the leadership are Muslims. She'd say, you know, if those those countries, you know, like Egypt or something, are doing bad things, and we should criticize them, we shouldn't hesitate. So it's not an all, it's it's not, it's the most just sort of anodyne type of thing that even George Bush said after 9-11 mm-hmm. that like, yeah, we can't blame all Muslims for this. There's 1.8 billion of them. Um, this is a, a bunch of radical extremists. And it it is, you know, I think it is the, 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 the clear uh, biggest danger of terrorism in this country right now, maybe wasn't always this way, but is right-wing uh, white nationalist neo-Nazis uh, that sort of political, like like that sort of violent extremism? Yeah, and I think it's 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 functionally identical to how uh, Islamist terrorism works. You have a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of of absolutely dingbat radicals who think that killing lots of civilians is a way to achieve their objective. And some of them say, you know, we should crash planes into buildings or we should do suicide bombings and others. And then the other side, they say that we should go into a mosque and shoot, you know, dozens of innocent people or go into a synagogue and shoot dozens of innocent people. And that's how we need to achieve our political objectives. And in neither case should you blame the entire demographic category that they happen to belong to for what's going on. But it's beyond obvious, you know. It all came to a head when Trump tweeted out a video that was, uh, you know, uh, made up of the, um, you know, Omar comments superimposed over images of 9-11, you know, and and just trying to whip up a frenzy of hatred against her. And so then there was a big backlash over, uh, you know, um, over Trump, but then also, you know, the refusal of the Democratic... Uh, leadership to pr- protect her, stand up for her, because you know previously, uh, you know when she got in hot water over some like ill-phrased comments about the influence of Israel, they put up a v- they 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 did put put together a vote to condemn her, you know, and they um, at AIPAC uh, Chuck Schumer compared her to neo-Nazis as, as you know, saying like the, you know, on the one hand, when Trump says that there are very fine people at Charlottesville, we have to call that out. And on the other hand, when Omar says this or that, 
we have to call that out as if there are identical behaviors. That uh, smells like false equivalence to me, my friend. Yeah. And, um, you know, so Bernie Sanders, uh, as should, uh, should not be surprising, he was first out of the gate to say that this was terrible. Elizabeth Warren was not far behind him. Then there are a variety, you know, quite a bit later than that. Pete Buttigieg had a thing about how he was in Afghanistan. Um, Nancy Pelosi said in a tweet, quote, The memory of 9-11 is sacred ground, and any discussion of it must be done with reverence. The president shouldn't use the painful images of 9-11 for a political attack. So that one, you know, she's... she's, (laughs) Just just, uh, gutless. She's accepting the criticism that that Omar somehow downplayed 9-11. And Christian Gillibrand did the same thing. She said, quote, as a senator who represents 9-11 victims, I can't accept any minimizing of that pain. But Trump's dangerous rhetoric against Ilhan Omar is disgusting. It's a false choice to suggest we can't fight terrorism and reject Islamophobic hate at once. A president should do both. And so, you know, she's sort of setting it up with a kind of backhanded swipe at Omar, which in, which accepts the right-wing false frame of this as as if, you know, Omar is just sort of shrugging off 9-11. No big deal. It was, you know, not a problem. And so, you know, this this then, um, you know, the, don't, the forget, activists, don't forget what Pelosi did next, right? Going over across the pond and, and meeting with defectors from the labor party because they thought that Corbyn is anti-Semitic and they're, they're, you know, pulling at like 1%, but she thought it'd be important at this time amidst this, this, uh, you know, PR maelstrom to meet with those idiots. I think that's instructive, you know, cause I've sort of paid ha- half a, uh, ears worth of attention to the whole Corbyn controversy. And I think, the case that he's anti-Semitic and the case that Ilan Omar is anti-Semitic are pretty much equally valid, which is to say 99% invalid. So Omar, you know, as many Jews have, have said, it's like her her comments in back in March when she originally got in hot water were kind of ill-phrased. You know, it's like you don't, to- don't want to... Right? S- yeah, a little bit tone deaf. Like she clearly wasn't... Uh, she wasn't familiar with how you phrase the thing she's trying to say, um, in a in in a way that's very that's sensitive to the you know I think to, totally legitimate concerns about enabling anti-Semitism and so and, and so on. And similarly with Corbyn, you know, and like some of his history, uh, there's that mural and so on. Um, but I don't think in either case, no sympathetic observer would would look at that and be like, yeah, these people are dedicated anti-Semites. Like they just don't care about it at all. You know, it's just it's like a thing where they're they're not, you know, they come from a sort of radical tradition where the 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 how anti-Semitism has been leveraged, uh, the anti anti-Semitism has been leveraged to shut down any criticism of Israel has been taken for a given because that absolutely does happen all the time. Um, and the, you know, the evidence of that is was no clearer than, than uh, later when uh, after the whole Omar thing, Trump went in front of the Republican Jewish coalition. And <laughs> so, you know, the criticism about Omar is, is she sort of like, She's sort of like dancing next to tropes about dual loyalty, right? So that like Jews have dual loyalty to Israel and and America. 
Trump straight up said that he referred to Netanyahu as your prime minister. Speaking to Americans. Speaking to American Jews. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the, the conservatives who had been shitting their pants completely off their legs about Omar's comments did not say a single fucking word about well, that. Well, similarly, it, Trump, right? Trump actually is on uh, audio, at least, and all about video. I think it actually is video. Uh, in the wake of 9-11, talking about how his building is now the tallest in New York City because the World Trade Center <laughs> used to be the tallest and now his wins. Like, such a sociopath that he literally was using 9-11 to talk about how he's the greatest. He's got the tallest building now. Um, and and so, once again, there's like I feel like we're in the upside down or something. Like, Trump actually embodies the very thing he's using to attack people, which then the Democrats like glob onto to mischaracterize and attack people from their own party. This is this is so endemic of what our problem nationally politically is, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Trump is an anti-Semite. I think that's absolutely unquestionable. He supports Israel. Um and you see Netanyahu jumping on board for him with the same reason that he jumps on board with uh, fucking Viktor Orban or right-wing Polish politicians who, who deny, who downplay Poland's role in the Holocaust um, because that it fits with his sort of nationalist project to scoop all the Jews into Israel um, and, you know, also find some international support given that most of the liberal democracies... Uh, think he's dog shit, but um, right. But he's not. He's just, not a patriot in, in any meaningful sense, actually. Right. So, and, and neither is Netanyahu. And we can talk about this in a little bit about how actually Omar is much more, insofar as patriotism could be something of a virtue in any way. She represents it far more than Trump. Right. And, and so, so it's, it's kind of interesting to think about uh, things that are not patriotism insofar as it could be a virtue, you know, like jingoism or, or a type of nationalism project that you were referring to. And to actually sort the wheat from the chaff and see that, you know, the people that are being attacked actually are, are the best America has to offer. And the people that are appropriating the flag tend to be the most cynical bastards who have actually no real care or uh, kind of reverence for what it might mean to keep our polity functioning in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll return to the Democrats in a minute, but I think Israel is a good example of of how this process tends to eat itself. You know that that they, it, uh, Israel has boasted for decades that it's the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, you know, I would say Iran is about as democratic as as uh, Israel is, especially if you include the Palestinians that are under occupation. But nevertheless, right, Jews at least and, and Arab uh, Israelis do have the right to vote. But um, as this uh, fanatical right-wing nationalism has taken hold in Israel, Jewish democracy has been eroded even for Jews in Israel. To the extent where, you know, there's there's um, just enormous hatred of leftists and for you know sort of just gradual um, suppression of left wing parties and uh, a reduction of general political rights. You know, where like 
you you know you travel abroad and you say the wrong thing, you criticize Netanyahu, you know you might not be able to get back into the country. You're going to be subjected to, you know these these intrusive screenings and so on. And Netanyahu himself, uh, by all accounts, uh, is you know reportedly insanely corrupt. He has been on the take, uh, directing money to himself and to his political allies and friends. Um, undermining sort of clean government, you know, this this practically always goes hand in hand with this kind of extreme right wing politics, right. and it goes to show you that like the, this, it's a it's a it's a false chalice, you know. It's like it gives a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a psychological balm to people who are afraid of of outsiders and whatnot. But what it ends up doing is making the place just enormously shitty uh, place to live, you know, where where your freedom of speech is very seriously circumscribed and you're subject to constant surveillance and unaccountable, you know, police agencies. You know, many U.S. citizens have been uh, caught up in Trump's anti-immigrant dragnet, you know, not even all of them Mexican, I don't believe. But no, Ryan, and, there are at least, according to Trump and Fox News, three Mexican countries. So they might be from one of those three Mexican countries. I should say Mexican descent, not 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 from Mexico. But but you know, it's a, it's just a fucking this the the set concentration camps up and people get sucked in, you know. So at any rate, you know, it's just like it it goes to show you. I would say that that. Uh, this it's just a, r- a rancid way of organizing a society and it's a way that you know it turns outward worse like the 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 people you know subjected to the muslim ban and the you know refugee caravan fear-mongering and so on or whatever wars trump might start have it much worse but it turns in into the interior as well you know, it, it, the 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 search for scapegoats is kind of omnidirectional. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, we've talked about the psychology of it before, and the ways in which, um, you know, the ancient Greek notion of spiritedness or thumos is uh, it's important to align that with um, the other parts of the soul, as it were. Um, you know, reason and sp- and and your your appetites. But Trumpism is is the kind of. Uh, He's a type of p- petty tyrant who his own soul is disordered and tyrannical and and um, totally uh, misaligned in a way that makes his kind of um, spiritedness and appetites just whip up the kinds of emotions in people <clears throat> that get them to ignore the facts on the ground, right, that pertain to their well-being, that pertain to where the location of the actual problems are, to the fact that, like, a few thousand Asylum seekers and migrants has absolutely nothing to do with uh, whether they can pay the bills. Uh, but what it does do is does satisfy that kind of emotional craving to um, to somehow cope with the meaninglessness that capitalism otherwise uh, provides people on a day to day basis. Right. So so there is uh, a reason that that infotainment and, and Fox news is, is kind of an addictive form of entertainment and catharsis, uh, for the, the otherwise, um, less than fulfilled. And, you know, having the opportunity to scapegoat a member of Congress, a, a woman of color who is a lefty 
and to align her with Muslims writ large and 9-11 is a great opportunity to, uh, again, bypass the reason in the soul of his supporters and get them to just uh, relish the projection of their undealt with uh, problems in life onto an enemy that they could then attack uh, and own the libs by by pissing the libs off at the same time. So it's just um, you know one of many instances where uh, facts don't matter, uh, political economic realities don't matter. What matters is, as we've talked about with with the Adorno episode, Trump's um, psychological relationship with his fans where they can love how he's so narcissistically telling them their right and their identity, and at the same time, and related to that, telling them who's wrong and who they could be mad at for the state of their unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, and I'd say, you know, as a sort of counter um, uh, perspective, there's a pretty good piece by Peter Beinart in the... Um, the Atlantic, which which gets into uh, this, what we were speaking about previously, the the value of you know religious freedom for all religious minorities. He says um, he watched a speech and he says what I found was unexpected in offering a vision for how to live as an American Muslim. Her speech to care beautifully evoked what I treasure about being an American Jew. Uh, Omar's core argument was simple. We Muslims are not guests here. We are as American as everyone else, and thus we should bring our full selves into the public square. And so, you know, if you're if you're thinking about a sort of universalist, egalitarian type of um, moral framework, and, you know, you're Jewish, well, then the ability of Muslims to, to practice their faith and to... to uh, you know, participate fully in the in the political community is directly relevant to to your freedom. You know, it's all they're all bound up in each other because I mean, as a famous that famous poem goes, you know, first they came for the communists and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a communist, but like that process tends to keep going and you know, until all the minorities are gone. Yeah. Um No, that's right. And um, yeah, maybe maybe uh, as a as a closing comment here, back to the Democrats. Uh, you know the the for for a long time we've heard all this stuff about you know party unity. You know about how like Bernie should be inside the tent pissing out type of thing. He shouldn't criticize Democrats for doing this or that. But you just see in this case. It really explicitly that it is just an utterly opportunistic perspective. You know, it 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 couldn't be more obvious that that Pelosi and especially Chuck Schumer, who is I would say like a very racist against Palestinians um, and Muslims, that they just don't you know they don't care that much about Omar. You know, he he did criticize Trump's tweet. Uh, after the weekend and everyone's screaming at him online. Uh, but, you know, from his comments at AIPAC, like, they just don't want these. They don't want the, you know, women of color from marginalized communities, you know, who, who have been supposedly the backbone of the Democratic Party for the last decade, uh, black women of color and so on. Um, 
They're, they can participate in the Democratic Party insofar as they don't make any sort of radical demands. Yeah, in fact, and they don't and they don't get themselves into trouble. You know, yeah. like if if the Democrats had done something with Omar where they're like, "Look, we're going to set up some sort of sensitivity training or something <laughs> to make sure you don't step into these potholes." Right. You know, right. we're going to train you up so that you can express your criticism of American foreign policy in a sensible way that's rhetorically. Um, you know, Mac, like nobody would have said anything. Get in line. Would uh, they some... would discipline and punish them. They need to get in line. I mean, that this is yeah. a number of times since this this new wave and new class of uh, Congress people have come in. Uh, remember when AOC was uh, criticizing the fact that their orientation was being like sponsored by these right businesses at Harvard and yeah, uh, just totally, totally in bed with big business. Um, she was criticized for not knowing how things work and she'll basically have to figure it out the hard way or, or some some really dismissive comment about how she better understand that like basically everyone's bought and sold and if you don't just get in line with that, you're yeah. going to be... And, and Pelosi dismissively of this whole wing of the party and all the new people that are bringing into politics on 60 Minutes, I think just this past Sunday, said uh, when she was asked about the, the movement within the Democratic Party and, and the, the rising left wing, she dismissively says, that's like five people. <laughs> yeah. Which is just incredible when 70% of the country is in favor of Medicare for all. Uh, when Joe Crowley, the third that was third in line uh, to be speaker, uh, 10 term, right? Congressman was just trounced by AOC yeah, no, no real popular support there, right? Just, just a, a fluke. These people don't. I mean, they have to rationalize it that way because they don't want to change. The point is, and you know, we'll have to have Rich Yeselson back on because we didn't get to address, um, you know, him discussing who the real enemy is, or or if we should totally just focus on the Republicans and and uh, and not have these internecine battles necessarily. Uh, which you know, I, I don't. I don't think that there has to be an either or, and he even intimated that it's both. But um, there's definitely a complicity um, with the Democrats and the Republicans in maintaining the status quo, uh, politically and economically. That's just the way it works, and this is just another lesson in that. Yeah, you, right. I mean, you know that that it's just like Bill Clinton in nineteen. 19- 92 or whenever that was the the sister soldier moment um when it was convenient for him to throw a leftist black woman under the bus for to perform white identity politics for racists uh he did it and it worked out well for him in that instance um and then this in this case it's like at at her moment of you know very serious vulnerability to physical danger you know guy was arrested for uh calling um omar's office and threatening to kill her remarkably he gave his name and phone number in the in the process and so the fbi went to interview him and he's like yeah i'm a trump supporter i'm a patriot i don't like radical muslims in congress um you know they'll just those like they're just not going to do anything, you know. If and if if people yell at them for 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 hours, sort of grudgingly, be like, "Yes, Trump should stop uh, whipping up genocidal hatred." That's bad, you know. Like like the 
the thi- it's just totally one-sided. The leadership wants, you know, unswerving loyalty from these these new freshmen who are supposed to be the vanguard of the next generation of Democrats. But if if you know if they ever need their help, like it's going to be haltingly forthcoming at best. And I think that's just something you've got to keep in mind, you know, going forward, because, you know, with the, with this generation of leadership, especially Chuck Schumer, um, they just don't give a fuck. No, they have, about, they have no principle. They, that's It's almost cliche to say, but these bastards are just about their own power and they've rationalized away, you know, the actions that actually harm people and serve to... Uh, entrench the status quo in the face of uh, climate change, you know, tremendous uh, growing inequality and all kinds of suffering that Trump and just the status quo is is bringing to bear on, on populations of people. Uh, they don't really give a shit, you know, and, and these young upstart leftists do. And instead of getting getting in line with them and seeing that they're the future of the party and actually that fighting for the integrity of this cause to face these existential crises uh, with vigor and, you know, resolve and integrity and intelligence the way that AOC and, um, you know, Tlaib and uh, Omar and others have done, it's just... Reminds me, doesn't this remind you so much of MLK being most frustrated with the white moderate more than the KKK, right? Isn't this, this is the perfect example of how he says, you know what? I get the KKK. They hate me and we're, we're opposed. But what I really don't get is the white moderate, right? And, And that just is the perfect way to characterize these assholes. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're, they're most frustrated by inconvenience. You know, it's like. I don't want to try to impeach Trump because it's not going to work. You know, like, of course it's not going to fucking work. You know, he could bite a baby's heads off in the middle of Times Square and Republican senators would not vote to impeach him. No, and he said he could shoot Um, somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. He said it and nobody, you know, none of his fans would care. They'd like him all the more. And and this is the type, right, of um, rhetoric that you are complicit with and saying, well, I guess he had a point about what she said about 9-11, but... uh, both sides. Yeah. And which is why, so what then to turn maybe to the theory that we read for today, how to think through both Trump, the, the Dems, and, and the leftists, and proper understandings of patriotism or what it means to use that language if, the, if there's such a thing, right, as... Because to say maybe that Trump and others misuse the flag is to suggest that there might be a proper way to relate to some type of uh, patriotism, right? And so that, I think that's an interesting theoretical thing to think about because yeah, I would posit at the outset that what Omar was doing was trying to navigate a proper relationship to what it means to be an American in a healthy way. And, and so... Uh, Yes. That, if that's the case, what's, what's the distinction? I think that's worth exploring, right? Yeah, so we read an article or a lecture uh, called Is Patriotism a Virtue? by Alistair McIntyre. Yes. Who was the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. 
And so this was a Lindley lecture at the University of Kansas in March 26, 1984. Um, I don't know if uh, that, I don't know anything about that person. Do he, you? I do. He is um, a really interesting philosopher. He's still alive. He, he's pretty old. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he was born in 1929. So uh, you did the math on wow. how old he is. But he, uh, he's, he's quite renowned in moral philosophy, the history of philosophy and theology he was at one point a Marxist, then he became a Thomist, you know, a Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I think he's, he's Catholic, right? And he, he spent some time at Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if he's there now where he is now. Maybe he's still at Vanderbilt, or I'm not sure precisely. But um, he his famous, well, his most famous work is After Virtue. And uh, a number of things he's done refer to kind of the modern or, or maybe postmodern problems that have been born of not remembering the history of ideas in a way. So, so for example, and just very briefly, liberalism, as we've talked about before, tends to think of itself as ahistorical and objective and neutral and kind of almost like a, a science where you just, you know, there's facts over here, there's values over here. And uh, <clears throat> this is just a non, it's like the Ezra Klein philosophy, right? It's like a non-ideological way to look at the world. And, uh, and so he, he sees that that itself comes from a, a liberal tradition. Yeah. And it's, it's especially problematic because it's a tradition that pretends it's not a tradition. Uh, so, so he understands that real disagreements come from different traditions in which people have certain premises about what the good life is, right? And these all arose historically at certain times with certain thinkers, certain ways of life. And in those communities, in those time periods, uh, there was perfectly rational ways to figure out what good and bad were, but they were like delimited by all those assumptions and premises. And so over time, what happened is we kind of lost track of what those rival communities and ways of making sense of the world were. And people just started like thinking that, whatever their preference was, was moral just because it was their preference and lost track of the fact that they were disagreeing because they had different rival communities and traditions of thoughts that they were like subconsciously appropriating to make their political or moral arguments. <laughs> and so there's all this disagreement without the people realizing why they're talking past each other. And so he's a very, he's been very good at kind of offering this model of pluralism in a way that seeks to uh, at least clarify where the disagreements uh, come from and what the different rival premises are. Because within those distinct ways of thinking of the world, they're perfectly rational, logical ways of thinking. Uh, it's just very, very different premises, right? So uh, he's, very, he's been very useful yeah. in, in outlining some of, some of those um, things. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, just first off, um, it's just a delightful article. You know, it's 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 very clear, very well reasoned. Um, it's nice to see just a very very intelligent person just sort of like reading this like in incredibly clear and logical argument. You know, yeah, no bullshit. A lot no of philosophy. Yeah, a lot of philosophy is, I think, just like deliberately or or maybe semi consciously written like absolute garbage. You know, just just it, 
difficulty for the sake of difficulty, but this one is just just very you know boom boom boom, and it's 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 challenging, I would say, and I don't, I'm not sure I have an answer to the question he's posing. Right. Yeah. So we'll link to it. So um, it's, I don't know if we mentioned the title. Is patriotism a virtue? Is the question. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. That's what I get for just ignoring half of what you said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So. So yeah. So I mean this. I would think fits into the broader project I was describing that he he tackles, uh, taking the problem of patriotism and the question of patriotism um, as an example of how there are these um, different ways of thinking about what a virtue and a vice would be, uh, specifically the, the kind that says uh, in liberal traditions that to be moral is to be disconnected, detached from any particular passions, interests, um, communities. It's like a universal, uh, this is where universal human rights comes from. It's like this Kantian notion that you um, kind of abstract from yourself to find out what the universal moral law should be. And so morality is the enlightenment that comes from the freedom to be a rational person detached from any particularity, right? Because that would simply, as Rawls might, might suggest as well, would be to prefer the position in the world that you're in and try to rationalize why that's better because it benefits you. It's really just about your own power and, and aggrandizement. But to be truly moral is to kind of, in, in, you know, in Rawls is a type of neo-Kantian, to put on the veil of ignorance and pretend that you don't know if you'd be male, female, rich, poor, or whatever. And that would be a more fair way of establishing kind of, you know, what might look moral because it would be, uh, again, something that applies uh, without respect to any particular advantages you might have in a place or time. Yeah. Right? So, so there's that notion of morality. That's one notion that tends to be used when we think about um, patriotism and, and critiques of it. And, and then, of course, the definition of patriotism, right, which has a lot to do with obviously a particular nation state and a reason to be loyal to that place. Um, and I think he's interesting in how he parses what patriotism is versus other forms that are uh, adjacent to, but not quite patriotism. Right. Um, so maybe we could just dive yeah. in, into some of this. Yeah. He, he, um, he says, uh, about, you know, the case for, um, the case for patriotism, he says, quote, it is also and correlatively that the goods by reference to which and for the sake of which any set of rules must be justified are also going to be goods that are socially specific and particular. For central to those goods is the enjoyment of one particular kind of social life lived out through a particular set of social relationships, and thus what I enjoy is the good of this particular social life inhabited by me, and I enjoy it as what it is. It may well be that it follows that I would enjoy and benefit equally from similar forms of social life in other communities, but this hypothetical truth in no way diminishes the importance of the contention that my goods are, as a matter of fact, found... Uh, among these particular people in these particular relationships, goods are never encountered except as thus particularized. And so skipping on a bit, uh, he says, the case for treating patriotism as a virtue is now clear. 
If, first of all, it is the case that I can only apprehend the rules of morality in the version in which they are incarnated in some specific community, and if, secondly, it is the case that the justification of morality must be in terms of particular goods enjoyed within the life of particular communities, and thirdly, it is the case that I am characteristically brought into being and maintained as a moral agent only through the particular kinds of moral sustenance afforded by my community, then it is clear that if, uh, that deprived of this community, I am unlikely to flourish as a moral agent. Hence my allegiance to the community and what it requires of me, even to the point of requiring me to die to sustain its life, could not be meaningfully contrasted with or counterposed to what morality required of me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah, um, should we? Impa- and maybe you know, just just to quote his, uh, he he says, "There's a there's a uh, response here though that we can just just to get him on the record." He says, um, "In terms of ab- abstract, universal, non-contingent." Uh, morality, he says, quote, the liberal answer is clear. Such abstraction and detachment is defensible because it is a necessary condition of moral freedom, of emancipation from the bondage of the social, political, and economic status quo. For unless I can stand back from every and any feature of that status quo, including the roles within it which I myself presently inhabit, I will be unable to view it critically and to decide for myself what stance it is rational and right for me to adopt towards it. Right, right. And and I yeah. think that the tricky thing about this is like, you can really see both sides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in fact, that's where he lands. It's really difficult to, to just think like, well, you know, I mean, I think the people who are kind of glib about this sort of thing would be like, well, it's clearly, you know, it's clearly... You have to, you know, be loyal to to your family first, or whatever. Or there's others who say like America's dog shit. You never, everything we do is terrible, and you should never have any loyalty to our institutions. But <laughs> yeah. it's really not obvious where you should go with that. Well, no, because and and so I think we're far more likely with our listeners to find people who are America's dog shit, right? Perspective. And and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 so historically, and we've talked about this before. Obviously, there's plenty of evidence for that, and plenty of reasons to think of uh, the United States of America that way. The problem is, yeah. if you're a radical or a lefty who is trying to have a vision of and to enact a good life for everyone collectively, it's going to happen here where we are, where we live together with the people here. So like what that means is what the country needs to be will be a different version of American that we think it should be. So that means we are necessarily in a project of redeeming whatever is whatever it is we've been into something that we want it to be, which means we have some allegiance to the project of making this country, which is where we are, right? Uh, something, yep. something good, a community and, and a number of communities in which people can flourish. So, so to just totally shit on that as a project means you don't really give a shit, right, about having a good life with the people here at all, one might say. Yeah, you, I, I mean, you know, yeah, as you say, there's, there is so much to point at in American history that, that is just, just absolutely horrible. You know, it's like we stole half of Mexico, we exterminated the Indians, um, you know, we're, we're running um, – 
you know, Marines invading Haiti for like 20 years to protect the sugar company, banana republics, um, yeah. you know, all these quote unquote anti-communist dictatorships that we propped up. And, um, and still to this day, yeah. not just historically, mass incarceration, oh, yeah. all kinds of, all kinds of, so it's, it's a continual, Fucking Yemen. yeah, it's a continual yeah. process of failure, right. To, to properly allow huge amounts of populations to flourish and individual injustices that are separate, even from those, you know, uh, group injustices and all kinds of terrible things. So that's all yeah. true, but, I, but yeah. But it's not the whole story. You know, there have been instances in which justice has been extended um, to, you know, marginalized communities. It's like, well, we, you know, we interned Japanese-American citizens during World War II, but those people got reparations later. They weren't exterminated as they would have been in, you know, a a truly fascist country. Um, You know, you can point to a lot of just appalling foreign policy atrocities. But on the other hand, you know, under the post-World War II uh, sort of America-dominated economic order, we have allowed a lot of other countries to flourish and become wealthy. Um, uh, in, you know, in Europe and and in uh, Japan and Korea, China is coming up now. Um, and that, you know, so... It's not as like the thing that I think people miss in terms of viewing the United States as some kind of uniquely evil country is that history is much worse than what America has done, Um, you know, and it's not just a purely 100 percent exploitation and murder and just subjugating everything except for ourselves. There has been these cracks and these these uh, you know these uh, circumstances by which you know we have learned to live with, you know for example the UK we used to be our bitterest enemy and now it's like an important trading partner and so like, could you and, imagine and a now war we collaborate between... with them to bomb brown people sorry that's just, <laughs> well yes and then right <laughs> and then there's the flip side we're doing the domination on these these other countries and that is awful and terrible. But I think the question is, how do we treat how, how do we treat the global South um, in in a, in the same way that we treat Western Europe? To say it's like Norway, you know, it's like the way sort of really far left radicals that you, you talk about, like how you know ah, socialist countries are never allowed to exist because they'll just be ex- exterminated by West by uh, capitalists. But like they. Norway owns like 1.3% of all the equities in the world. They just bought those up. And nobody did anything because Norway is embedded in the whole, you know, um, you know, Western liberal uh, trade relationships and so on. And they were sort of playing by the rules and such. And um, they have, I would say, the most socialist society that has ever existed. And... Um, what about nobody? You know, nobody Cuba? even really knows about that. Cuba, Cuba. What's what that? About Cuba. Cuba doesn't own that much. <laughs> they, yeah. And it's not socialist in the sense that it's not. It's it's a it's a dictatorship. I would say you know that that kind of command 
uh, oppressive system. It goes against the ten- tenets. Cuba has much to, rec- you know, it's the infant mortality rate is lower in Cuba than it is in the United States, yep. you know, so, but it's it's not as bad as as some places. It's certainly not like Stalinist Russia, but, um, you know, they, they have achieved, I think, like maybe two-thirds of the sort of Marxist utopian dream of, of collectively controlling the whole economic system. And, um, you know, there's no... We're not sending gunboats over there or anything like that. I barely even notice it's happening. And I would say that should be the project. to, You know, we are Americans, and there there's no getting around that. And our task as leftists, I would say, is to try to transform, to reconcile. This is the most interesting part of the essay, I think, that he says, uh, towards the end, he says, um, For while the liberal moralist was able to conclude that patriotism is a permanent source of moral danger because of the way it places our ties to the nation beyond rational criticism— the moralist who defends patriotism is able to conclude that liberal morality is a permanent source of moral danger because of the way it renders our social and moral ties too open to dissolution by rational criticism. And each party is, in fact, in the right against the other. And he doesn't suggest a sort of... He, he kind of like points towards a sort of synthesis or, or a way to get through that, but I think that, you know, if you're thinking practically... Um, that that's the question. That's the question you got to work on because, uh, yeah, clearly, like blind pray just like my country, right or wrong. That's a terrible situation. But we are embedded in this society, and it does require a sort of a sort of bonds of fellow feeling. Yes, as there, among the citizens, Aristotle said, you, you need the bonds of affection and certain shared understandings of what social life should be. And socialism has a lot to offer in terms of framing what those effective ties should be, right? And how, right? How Americans should, and, and it's a, a tremendous view that incorporates what Omar was saying about how to be American is to treat all. See. The, the right tends to think of unity as something that um, eschews difference. And of course, fascism at its very core is all about uh, annihilating difference. And that's why it's a, a will to nothingness and a will to death. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the type of affirming of unity uh, in diversity, or dif- you know, the, the e pluribus unum notion, where, where Omar says that you speak your difference, but as an American... That is the type of, of lefty uh, integration of difference into a certain type of unity and, and bond where everyone considers themselves, right, brothers and sisters, or as we like to say, comrades, um, not just despite those differences, <laughs> but in part because those differences suggest we're all equally human and we should therefore celebrate the different manifestations of our humanity and, and what they represent, um, but not in a way to just totally tie in some kind of like liberal dream of an untetheredness to any particularities of time, space, location, or otherwise, right? Um, that would be that would be almost like the joke of Stephen Colbert when he says, I'm cl- colorblind. I didn't realize you're black. I can't see color, right? This this notion, <laughs> right? This this thing was this papering over difference yeah. as if, right? You can have this um, floating ego in the world, right? Um, so, uh, you know, McIntyre says here on page 16, right? Um, uh, Suppose the bonds of patriotism to be dissolved. 
Would liberal morality be able to provide anything adequately substantial in its place? What the morality of patriotism at its best provides is a clear account of and justification for the particular bonds and loyalties which form so much of the substance of moral life. It does so by underlying the moral importance of the different members of a group, acknowledging a shared history. Each one of us, to some degree or other, understands his or her life as an enacted narrative, and because of our relationships with others, we have to understand ourselves as characters in the enacted narratives of other people's lives. And so he goes on, right? And so there's something interesting about what's that narrative that Omar is speaking of. It's the narrative of a land built on all kinds of immigrants who come in at different times. And so the shared history is the shared history of integration assimilation of immigrants to a country whose ideals were founded not on a certain ethnicity, right? Not actually on a particular religious or ethnic basis, but on ideals. And here's the, the, the seemingly contradictory part that embrace the pluralistic uh, affirmation of any particular type of person who wants to, to self-govern in a policy like this, right? And so the, the struggle of civil rights has been to actually, right, make politically real the ideal that all humans are created equal to rule. What that means is created equal in their capacity to, to rule themselves and each other collectively. That's the whole point. The move away from monarchy and from other forms of, of power, that's based on this notion that everyone, no one is superior to anyone else in their ability to, to flourish and to govern um, themselves or, or others collectively. And so that ideal has had to be struggled for to actually include people from all over the world of different religious and, and ethnic traditions and that's a, a thing worth pursuing. It's a very lefty idea that comports with the Declaration of Independence. And so I don't know why we can't embrace that as a vision for what we should be fighting for. Um, I think that's a type of patriotism that, that could be not this xenophobic, jingoistic, right-wing version, but neither this liberal notion that there's this dispassionate thing where you don't understand the value of community or effective ties, right? Yeah. I mean, you see the danger of of liberalism and the spread of neoliberalism, and how you know you 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 have all these uh, national elites who have completely uh, ditched any sort of loyalty to their own communities and view them just basically as as places to be pillaged as mercilessly as they would pillage any global South country. That's right. You know, the Rust was, Belt and the Steel Belt like, got totally hosed. For that very reason, right? Yeah. So I was reading, I was just putting this in an article the other day. Uh, 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 wholesalers put 780 million opioid pills into West Virginia over six years. One town of like 325 people got nine million pills over just two years, and it's and it's from that type of reasoning to just to just to to it a curdled. I would say. It's not people thinking like I am, you know, this is the moral type of thing, but just like I am, I am not a part of this community. I'm just thinking abstractly about my own personal interests and so on. Um, you know, cl clearly John Rawls would never do anything like that. But that is a danger, you know, the people who just like they, you know, they jack themselves out of their community and, and don't they, they pretend as though they don't depend on anybody else, you know, as if as if like it's it's a. Uh, um, you know, they're, they're John Galt or whatever. And, 
it's it can be i think in a in a in a toxic form just incredibly poisonous yeah that's uh, right politically. yeah to be fair to john rawls the the veil of ignorance right and the um thought experiment he came up with and justice's fairness is meant to actually come up with a theory for how to create a specific political community that is fair in that actual nation state and that right so so like there's yeah and he would be basically i think a social democrat at at the very least in terms of um providing for fun like fundamental european welfare states that we don't do in this country at all and 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 And, so on um oh god what's his name uh uh, charles mills uh uh, uh, a philosopher from jamaica he's got a great critique of of overalls in in which he brings up this exact point to say that yeah you know you're thinking about this abstractly about how to create an ideal society but then like well, what about history? What about the particular injustices that particular groups have have uh, suffered over the time? And like, would those, he says, uh, you know, what if those situations are metaphysically distant from your sort of ideal, ideal like framework that you would set up in, you know, in the context of just sort of like random people who are all exactly the same? And so you may need to introduce each, each but he doesn't dis- dismiss it. He said, well, you know, we introduce things to, to, uh, to rescue this notion, which is very appealing. And I think it, I think it's got a lot to offer of the veil of ignorance, um, and, you know, uh, the, the, the difference principle and whatnot to, to say, to, to, to push towards a more realistically grounded way of saying, uh, that that yes what we need is the type of thing you're gesturing towards but we have to take history into account and um and that's what i think you know when you sort if you sort of like try to zoom out or 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 think a little more utopian about this um uh a, a good you know a thing to kind of aim at maybe would be uh star trek the federation of planets right so they they posit a future history in which all the nations were sort of gradually dissolved into this overarching structure in which first all humans on planet earth were were sort of combined over the years into this one big thing to to say that you know we you know we're not americans anymore we're just humans we're citizens of planet earth and then later other species the vulcans and so on they got absorbed in there and the it it, it's it's not like um the the sort of history not super familiar with the star trek canon but the history was was that it it proceeded you know in stages where you you know you had the united states and you had, you know, various other countries, but then they slowly came together in the kind of United Nations type of thing. And they, um, you know, the, the the bonds of patriotism, as we've been talking about, were just extended further and further and further until they encompassed everybody. And I, and and I think so a key it, part of that is there's no scarcity anymore, right? Technology has developed. So, yes. so, so that's a huge part of it. Um, and I'm not sure if, if the technology and the fact that they're moving through space means you also don't have like the spatial boundedness, right? Right? Like obviously. <laughs> well, you're bounded by 
politics because they get in fights with other, sure. other people all the time. But yeah, right. I mean, that's a that's a kind of oh, we have replicators now and and um, you know f- fusion, and so we have no no uh, no. Uh, in fact, I believe in the Star Wars history that sparks a giant war, the discovery of limitless energy, because like that just undermines the whole basis of politics. But right. at any rate, you know. Um, you could imagine a sort of like a, a a future over the next like hundred years or so, which would which would sort of tend towards the ideal version of how the European Union has expanded, like setting aside all of the terrible things about the European Union, you know, just <laughs> taking the best parts of it, free movement, you know, and 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 uh, um, of people, yeah. Free ex- exchange of 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 people and goods. You can go anywhere you want, and all that, um, and just that that sort of thing. It's just gradually extended across the entire world, and and ex- 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 taking your own rooted historical contingent understanding of your community and gradually building that out across the whole of society. And I think you know that's a that's a task of generations. But I think that's something that really. You know, I think it, it the, the, you know, workers of the world unite. That was a really good slogan. You know, yeah. that that really bound a lot of people together. Well, and that's what and, I think leftism that hopefully even in the, you know, putative democratic socialist, but actually maybe social democrat uh, to the extent that that distinction matters, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign <laughs> is recognizing the international solidarity and the need to inform policy and also just in terms of, of rhetoric and solidarity, speak out for the workers of the world and the dispossessed uh, around the world, the stateless, but also within certain bounded communities, those that are being oppressed by other governments, and to make that form of alliance across the globe, not based on kind of this realist notion of like, which allies can help us get more oil and like which resources who yeah. should we, who should we try to help dominate the world together with? And, you know, and the shift <laughs> uh, like that is a totally different way to look at it where we could have a leftist internationalism that still cares about flourishing in the particular communities you live in. Right. And you care very much about, as many lefties I know have said, like, Lots of right wingers like, well, why don't you critique the governments around the world for what they're doing? It's like, well, I do. But guess what? This is the one I live in that I am responsible to. And I'm literally able to influence the elections and the other forms of politics here. So I have the duty and the responsibility and the care for this community as a primary community to, to care for and to, to, to be active in as a citizen. Right. And, and that doesn't go against caring about other communities. That's the whole point, right? It's, it's, a, it's unity and diversity in, in a different, different scale. Yeah. And, it, and it's apparently, you know, around the world, um, people are looking at Bernie, you know, a lot of lefties around the world, they're looking at Bernie and, and just like crossing their fingers, you know, the court, uh, the Corbinites in the UK, um, uh, what's his name in Bolivia, Evo Morales, um, you know they're 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 looking at that and they're just like oh freaking hope that Bernie wins and that's you know that that's the kind of kind of thing to to it's is if you if you flip American imperialism on its head I mean America at least for the moment is the keystone of the whole global capitalist empire thing and if you and if you could really take that down or or 
operated on behalf, you know, maybe you couldn't completely dismantle it overnight or or transform it overnight, but but you you know, the president has a ton of power over this kind of stuff and and he could really change the way that global politics operates. Or she, you know, Elizabeth this. Warren, she possibly. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Um I don't think she's quite as good as on foreign policy, but shit, hell of a lot better than Trump, that's for sure. And, you know, to 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 say in at least, you know, maybe somewhat limited extent, depending on how able he is to manage the bureaucracy and so on and what types of people he puts in a place, like, you could absolutely transform the politics of, like, hundreds of nations overnight just to be like, oh, yeah. We elect this person, and we're not going to face a sort of capital strike. Or we could we could sort of call on our friends to, you know, to 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 like bust down the the um, you know the tax havens like, Ber- you know, Bermuda or Ireland or Switzerland. You know, like think of the power you could turn on those places and be like, stop hiding all the money from rich people around the world right. and like they need to pay what they and owe man if you can get a leftism that actually really does that i think people will be shocked how many i mean there was this town hall that bernie did with fox news right and he did fox town hall yes and the audience went nuts for medicare for all the audience apparently i don't know how they selected the audience <laughs> but apparently they, they, they went nuts for all kinds of things that the gotcha fox you know moderator was trying to get them on and he just spoke like proudly of his positions and the crowd went nuts like i think you could really people misunderstand one how fixed people's ideologies are two how well they understand ideologies i mean we all remember get your government hands off my medicare signs right uh yep and three if these narratives that people have currently can be shaped differently so people understand their shared history uh in a new way I mean, no one's going to peg Bernie as a, you know, an anti-patriot or those that do. It's not going to work if he can actually show that he's fighting the system that is harming everyone. Right. I think there's a lot of possibility uh, about how people rethink this country, how they rethink immigrants, how they rethink uh, people around the world. I just there's a lot of possibility out there. Right. And and um, and there's no reason not to fight for that vision of what could be. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they they pick that audience. You know, maybe the Sanders campaign put puts like half of them in there or something. But um, I don't think you'd get the majority of Trump supporters to 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 jump. You know, to be on the Medicare for all bandwagon. But you would get some, I think. You know, and if you could actually do it, I think that you know you you would create. As 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 like uh in in West Virginia, um, people used to put up portraits of 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 Franklin Roosevelt on their like mantelpiece, you know, as a symbol of of a kind of it's like you you could say you could say it's like a personal symbol. But I'd say it's also a sort of patriotic symbol. It's like here's a leader who cares about yes. what I'm doing, and and this is That's why right. the United States is good. That's right. Because 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 the leader cares about me, cares about my problems, and is going to try to make things better for me. Yes. And um, that's a that that kind of politics has has been almost totally absent in the United States for for a long time. You know, it's just. It's it's neoliberal sort of cosmopolitan, uh, uh, substance free identity politics on the one side, 
and just revanches culture war bigotry on the other side. And, you know, we just haven't seen how that kind of thing could play out. But I think that you could you could peel off a substantial portion of the Trump Trump and proletariat, as you might call it, um, and perhaps more importantly, activate a lot of people who have just totally given up on the system. Be like, you know, here's a guy who's he's he's not bullshitting us. You know, he he's not the same old stuff. Or she, you know, I think Warren could accomplish much the same thing. Um, you know, and so and harnessing that that type of that you know the the social bonds we were talking about before to 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 build a um you know an an american identity which isn't just violent and hateful right. and just wanting to stomp Th- there's, on other there's people a reason why the right wing gets a lot of play out of calling leftists anti-american and there's some truth to it, right? Like they're, they're, and, and so they, they try to just make the troops, the troops, the troops, you know? Well, there's a fucking reason that they keep mentioning the troops. And, and McIntyre talks about soldiers. What are soldiers supposed to yeah. do? So soldiers are supposed to protect uh, by force the total dissolution of your community. Um, and to do that, they can't be questioning whether or not any particular policy or, or thing that you're doing is wrong. Because to do that would to be to neglect that fundamental last ditch responsibility they have to save the union from uh, just totally being eradicated. Right. And that's an important role, but we haven't needed that role in in like forever. And instead we've used not as a defensive tool, but the army as an aggressive form of imperialism and militarism in order to dominate the rest of the world. But like theoretically soldiers are supposed to really represent that friend enemy distinction, which means we care about our community against aggressors and we want to protect it. So like, Acknowledge that that's an ideal worth having while still fighting to make the country that you want to exist, that's what it means, that it should exist, to be the best version of itself it can be, right? And that might mean totally tearing up the Constitution. That might mean, who knows, open borders. (laughs) Who knows, right? But like... You're just masturbating if you're trying to avoid the fact that all good has to occur in a time and space with people that live here. And and so there needs to be an understanding of that if we want to um, build a future where we can build those kind of coalitions and bring people into the fold for a leftist vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe as a closing comment, uh, Kurt Vonnegut once said about uh, George Bush and soldiers uh, during the post 9-11 era, he said that, I may, I may be misremembering the quote exactly, but he said it, that he's, he's, he's treating them like I was never treated, like toys a rich kid got for Christmas. Mm. And that's, that's the flip side of this sort of conservative of valorization of the military, um, is that they... Um, I mean, Jesus, you, you, like the fighter jets and the, the fucking troops at the football games and so on. Um, the flip side of that is going over to fight wars in right. Iraq right. and Afghanistan and like 150 countries for special forces to do fuck all. That's right. To do nothing, go get blown up for no reason whatsoever. That's right. And and, know, leave, f- fight. and if they survive all of that, they end up killing themselves in, in, in great number. Right. And, and yeah, as, as Judith Butler 
uh, writes about the, quote, indispensable people, which means our military, they're indispensable, are actually the most disposable or dispensable people. We just throw their bodies away in all these unnecessary wars, and we don't give them medical care that's proper. We don't give them the vests they even need while they're over there. We don't give them the mental health treatment that they deserve when they get back. And so this perversion that we hinted at at the beginning, where it's a fake patriotism, it's a bullshit, cynical power grab by oligarchs who don't give a shit about the populations they're going to war with. They don't give a shit about the people here that are suffering, migrants or white-collar or blue-collar workers, um, they appropriate these terms in cynical ways, and actually they don't give a shit about our military. They only care about using these terms and these people to to their selfish ends at the expense of, of blood and treasure. Yeah. Yeah, the... Um I was reading the, uh, the 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 Brown University cost of war thing is something like 6500 soldiers dead in post 9/11 wars and and like 900,000 over 900,000 suffering um either either physical or mental problems uh, uh uh injuries afterwards you know it's not a small number of people um and so Anyways, I'm not sure how, you know, how or if Bernie could sort of tie that kind of a critique into in, in, into any sort of like, um, you know, lasting political message. But it's definitely true, you know, that that this, you know, the the the, the soldiers have been treated, the military has been treated with nearly the same. I mean, somewhat lesser, I suppose, in terms of medical care and stuff, but but the same contempt for life as the Iraqi civilians. I mean, you're not bombing the military bases, but George Bush didn't give a fuck about any of the dead soldiers. He didn't give a fuck. He wouldn't even let the cameras show the coffins coming home, you know? It was like a purely political instrument for him. And so, you know, you could possibly imagine a future in which um the 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 patriotic energies the 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 inherent need of of american society to to provide some sort of a glue to hold it together as a functioning um organism could be directed in a much more healthy and much less destructive fashion where it's not just being turned loose on random countries in the Middle East, and instead it's about you know fixing the problems in the at home, and and trying to allow the rest of the world to climb up the prosperity ladder in a you know environmentally sustainable fashion. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we got to do. That's right, and it's a lot easier in a way than it might have been had Trump actually done the trillion dollar infrastructure thing we thought he was going to do at the beginning, right? Like, had he actually helped his own supporters? Had, had he actually even cared about just white people, right? Did you see that Chris, Chris yeah. podcast with the guy on, on, uh, um, white people and, and they're, they're dying. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so, yeah. um, just like, you know, even forget all the people around the world that we're harming with our policies, but but even our own communities, even those that that vote for Trump, are being harmed, and and so that should be right um, something we can fight with a positive vision. So I hope so. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, thanks for listening, folks. 
Um, thanks, uh, patrons, for subscribing. And um, we appreciate your support very much. Yeah, you're the best. And we will we will see you in the next episode. See you. Bye-bye.